Witch of the Demon Seas, Chapter 5 Under a hot, sullen sky, the windless sea swelled in long, slow waves that rocked the tangled kelp and ocean grass up and down, heavenward and hellward. To starboard, the dark cliffs of a small jungled island rose from an angry, muttering surf, but there were no birds flying above it. Corin pointed to the shore. That's the first of the archipelago, he said. From here on we can look for the Xanthe to come at any time. We should get as far into their territory as possible, even to the Black Palace, said Chorzon. I will put a spell of invisibility on the ship. The sorcerers can break that, said Chryseus. Aye, so, but when they come to know our powers, I think they will treat with us. They'd better, smiled Amazu grimly. Stay on toward the island of the castle, said Chorzon to the pirate. I go to lay the spell. He went into his cabin. Corin had a glimpse of its dark interior before the door was closed, draped in black and filled with the apparatus of magic. You will have to be in a trance, physically, to maintain the enchantment, said Chryseus. She smiled at Corin and his pulses raced. Come, my dearest, it is cooler on the afterdeck. The sailors rowed steadily, sweat glistening on their bare blue hides. Imazu paced up and down the catwalk, flicking idlers with his whip. Corin stood where he could keep an eye on the steersman and see that the right course was followed. It had been utter wonder till now, he thought. Unending days when they ploughed through seas of magic, nights of joy such as he had never known. There had never been another woman such as Chryseus, he thought, never in all the world, and he was the luckiest of men. Though he died today, he had been more fortunate than any man ever dared dream. Chryseus, Chryseus, loveliest and wisest and most valiant of women. She was his. Before all the jealous gods, she loved him. There has only been one thing wrong, he said. You are going into danger now. The world would go dark if aught befell you. And I should sit at home while you're away and never know what had happened, never know if you lived or died. No, no, Corin. He laid a hand on the sword at his waist. It had given him arms and armor again after she had come to him. Logical enough, he thought, without resentment. He could be trusted now, as much as if he were one of Shorzan's ensorcelled warriors. But if there were a spell, too, the gods deliver him from ever being freed of it. He blinked. There was a sudden breath of chill on him, and his eyes were blurring. No, no, it was the ship that wavered, ship and man fading. He clutched at Chryseus. She laughed softly and slipped an arm around his waist. It is only Shorzan's spell, he said. It affects us, too, to some extent. And it makes the ship invisible to anyone within seeing range. Ghost ship, ghost crew, slipping over the slowly heaving waters. There was only the foggiest outline to be seen, shadow of mast and rigging against the sky glimpses of water through the grey smoke of the hull, blobs of darkness that were the crewmen. Sound was still clear. He heard the mutter of superstitious awe, crack of the whip, and Imazu's oaths that sent the oars creaking and splashing again. Corin's hand was a misty blur before his eyes. Chryseus was a shadow beside him. She laughed once more, a low exultant throb, and pulled his lips down to hers. He ruffled the streaming, fragrant hair and felt a return of courage. It was only a spell. But what were the spells, he wondered for the thousandth time. 
He did not hold the simple theory that wizards were in league with gods or demons. They had powers, yes, but he was sure that somehow these powers came only from within themselves. Chryseus had always evaded his questions about it. There must be some simple answer to the problem, some real process, as real as that of making a fire behind the performances of the sorcerers, but it baffled him to think what it might be. Blast it all, it just wasn't reasonable that Shorzan, for instance, should have been able actually to change himself into a jungle monster many times his size. Yet he, Corrin, had seen the thing, had felt its wet scales and smelled its reptile stink. How? The ship ploughed slowly on. Now and then Corrin looked at the compass, straining his eyes to discern the blurred needle. Otherwise they could only wait. But waiting with Chryseus was remarkably pleasant. It was at the end of a timeless time, perhaps half a day, that he saw the Xanthian patrol. Look, he pointed, there they come. Chrysis stared boldly over the sea. The hand beneath his was steady as her voice. So I see. They're beautiful, aren't they? The Ceteraea came leaping across the waves. Big, graceful beasts with the shapes of fish, their smooth black hides shining, and the water white behind their threshing tails. Astride each was a great golden form bearing a lance. They quartered across the horizon and were lost to sight. The crew mumbled in fear, shaken to their hardy souls by the terrible, unhuman grace of the Xanthi. Imazu cursed them back to work. The ship went on. Islands slipped by, empty of mansign. They had glimpses of Xanthian works, spires and walls rearing above the jungle. These were not the white colonnaded buildings of Taurus, or the timbered halls of Conaher. Of black stone they were, with pointed towers climbing crazily skyward. Once a great sea serpent reared its head, spouted water, and writhed away. All creatures save man could sense the presence of wizardry, and refused to go near it. Night fell, an abyss of night broken only by faint glimmers of sea-fire under the carpeting weed. Men stood uneasy watch in full armor, peering blindly into the somber immensity. It was hot, hot and silent. Near midnight, the lookout shouted from the masthead, Santhi to larboard! Silence, you fool! called Amazu. Want him to hear us? The patrol was a faint swirl and streaking of phosphorescence, blacker shadows against the night. It was coming nearer. Have they spotted us? wondered Coron. No! breathed Chrysus but they're close enough for their mounts. There was a great snorting and splashing out in the murk. The Ceterea were refusing to go into the circle of Shorzan's spell. Voices lifted, an unhuman croaking. The Irinye, the only animal who did not seem to mind witchcraft, snarled in sore-edged tones, eyes a green blaze against the night. Presently the squad turned and slipped away. I know something is wrong and I've gone for help, said Corrin. We'll have a fight in our hands before long. He stretched his big body, suddenly eager for action. His waiting was more than he could stand. The ship drove on. Corrin and Chryseus napped in the deck. It was too stiflingly hot below. The long night wore away. In the misty gray of morning, they saw a dark mass advancing from the west. Corrin's sword rasped out of the sheath. It was a long, double-edged blade, such as they used in Conaher, and it was thirsty. Get inside, Crassus, he said tightly. 
Get inside yourself, she answered. There was a lilt in her voice like a little girl's. He felt a quiver with joyous expectation. The ghostly outlines of the ship wavered, thickened, faded again, flickered back toward solidity. Suddenly they had sight. The vessel lay real around them. They saw each other in helm and corslet, face looking into tautened face. They have a wizard along. He broke Charzon's spell, said the Conhurian. We looked for that, answered Chrysius evenly. But as long as Shorzan keeps fighting him, there will be a roiling of magic around us, such that none of their beasts will approach. She stood beside him, slim and boyish in polished cuirass and plumed helmet, short sword belted to her waist and a bow in one hand. Her nostrils quivered, her eyes shone, and she laughed aloud. We'll drive them off, she said. We'll send them home like beaten Yaganaths. Yamazu blew the war horn, wild brazen echoes screaming over the sea. His men drew in the oars, pulled on their armor, and stood along the rails, waiting. But did we come here to fight them? asked Corin. No, said Chrysius, but we've known all along that we'd have to give them a taste of our might before they'd talk to us. The Xanthian lancers were milling about half a league away, as if in conference. Suddenly someone blew a harsh-toned horn, and Corin saw half the troop slide from the saddle into the water. So they'll swim at us, he muttered. The attack came from all sides, converging on the ship in a rush of foam. As the Xanthi neared, Corin saw their remembered lineaments and felt the odd clutch of panic. They weren't human. With a fluked tail, one of them had twice the length of a man. The webbed hind feet, on which they walked ashore, were held close to the body. The strangely human hands carried weapons. They swam half underwater, the dorsal fins rising over. Their necks were long with gills near the blunt-snouted heads. Their grinning mouths showed gleaming fangs. The eyes were big, dark, alive with cold intelligence. They bore no armor, but scales the color of beaten gold covered back and sides and tail. They came in at furious speed, churning the sea behind them. Chrysis' voice rose to a wild shriek. Perius! Perius! Kill! The Rinier howled and unfolded his leather-webbed wings. Like a hurled spear, he streaked into the air, rushed down on the nearest Xanthian like a thunderbolt, claws, teeth, barbed tail, a blinding fury of blood and death, ripping flesh as if it were parchment. The ship's ballista chunked and balls of the ever-burning Achaean fire were hurled out to fall blazing among the enemy. Chryseus's bow hummed beside Corin. a Xanthian went under with an arrow in his throat. The air was thick with shafts as the crew fired. Still the Xanthi rushed on, ducking up and down, near impossible to hit. The first of them came up to the hull and sank their clawed fingers into the wood. The sailors thrust downward with pikes, howling in fear-maddened rage. The man near Corin went down with a hurled javelin through him. At once a huge golden form was slithering over the rail, onto the deck. The sword in his hand flashed. Another Umlotuan's weapon was knocked spinning from his hand, and the reptile hewed him down. Corin sprang to do battle. The swords clashed together with a shock that jarred the man backward. Corin spread his feet and smote out. His blade whirled down to strike the shoulder, gash the chest, and drive the hissing monster back. With a rising cold fury, Corin followed it up, that for the long inquisition, that for being a horror out of the sea bottom, that for threatening Chryseus. The Xanthian writhed with the belly ripped open. 
Still, he wouldn't die. He flopped and struck from the deck. Corin evaded the sweeping tail and cut off the creature's head. They were pouring onto the ship through gaps in the line. Chrysius stood on the foredeck in a line of defending men, a bow singing death. Battle snarled about the mast, men against monsters, sword and halberd and axe belling in cloven bone. A giant's blow bowled Corin off his feet, the tail of a Xanthian. He rolled over and thrust upward as the sea demon sprang on him. The sword went through the heart, hissing and snapping his fold topple on him. He heaved the struggling body away and sprang back to his stance. To me, bellowed Amazu, to me, men! He stood wielding a huge battle-axe by the mast, striking at the beasts that raged around him, lopping heads and arms and tails like a woodman. Scattered humans rallied and began to fight their way toward him, step by bloody step. Perius the Irinier was everywhere, a flying fury ripping and biting and smashing with wing blows. Corin looked huge over the men who fought beside him, the sword shrieking and thundering in his hands. Emazu stood stolidly against the mast, smashing at all comers. A rush of Xanthi broke past him and surged against the foredeck. The defenders beat them off. Chrysis thrusting as savagely with her sword as any man, and they reeled back against the masthead warriors to be cut down. Azanthian sprang at Corin, wielding a long-shafted axe that shivered the sword in his hand. The Conohurian struck back, his blade darting past the monster's guard to stab through the throat. The Xanthian staggered. Corin wrenched the blade loose and brought it down again to sing in the reptile's skull. Before he could pull it loose, another was on him. Corin ducked under the spear he carried and closed his hands around the slippery sides. The clawed feet raked his legs. He lifted the thing and hurled it into another with bone-shattering force. One of them threshed wildly, neck broken. The other bounded a Corin. The man yanked his sword free and it whistled against the golden head. Back and forth the struggle swayed, crashing of metal and howling of warriors. And the Xanthi were driven to the rails. They could not stand against the rallying human line in the narrow confines of the ship. Kill them, roared Imazu. Kill the misbegotten snakes! Suddenly the Xanthi was slipping overboard, swimming for their mounts beyond the zone of magic. Perius followed, harrying them, pulling them half out of the water to rip their throats out. The ship was wet, streaming with human red and reptile yellow blood. Dead and wounded littered the decks. Corin saw the Xanthi cavalry retreating out of sight. We've won, he gasped. We've won. No, wait. Chrysius inclined her head sharply, seeming to listen, then darted past him to open a hatch. Light streamed down into the hold. It was filling. The bilge was rising. I thought so, she said grimly. They're below us, jumping into the hull. We'll see about that, said Corin and unbuckled his cuirass. All who can swim after me. No. No, they'll kill you. Come on, rapped Imazu, letting his own breastplate clang to the deck. Corin sprang overboard. He was wearing nothing but a kilt now, and had a spear in one hand and a dirk in his teeth. Freer was gone, washed out by the red tides of battle. There was only a bleak, terrible triumph in him. Men had beaten the sea demons. Under water it was green and dim. He swam down, down, brushing the hull, pulling himself along the length of the keel. There were half a dozen ships clustered near the waist, working with axes. He pushed against the keel and darted at them, holding the spear like a lance. The keen point stabbed into the belly of one monster. The others turned, their eyes terrible in the gloom. Corin took the dirk 
in his hand, got a grip on the next nearest and stabbed. Claws ripped his flanks and back. His lungs were bursting. There was a roaring in his head and a darkness before his eyes. He stabbed blindly, furiously. Suddenly the struggling form let go. Corrin broke the surface and gasped in a lungful of air. A sea demon leaped up beside him. At once the Urinier was on him. The Xanthian screamed as he was torn apart. Corrin dove back underwater. The other seamen were down there, fighting for their lives. They outnumbered the Xanthi, but the monsters were in their native element. Blood streaked the water, blinding them all. It was a strange, horrible battle for survival. In the end, Corrin and Imazu and the others, except for four, were hauled back aboard. We drove them off, said the pirate wearily. Oh, my dear, my dearest dear, Chryseus, who had laughed in battle, was sobbing on his breast. Charzan was on deck, looking over the scene. We did well, he said. We stood them off, killed about thirty, and only lost fifteen men. At that rate, said Corrin, it will take them long to clear our decks. I don't think they will try again, said Shorzan. He went over to a captured Xanthian. The sea demon had had a foot chopped off in the battle, and had been pinned to the deck by a pike, but he still lived, and rasped defiance at them. If allowed to live, he would grow new members. The monsters were tougher than they had a right to be. Hark you, said Shorzan in a Xanthian tongue, which he had learned with astonishing ease. Become on a mission of peace, with an offer that your king will be pleased to hear. You have seen only a small part of our powers. It is not beyond us to sail to your palace and bring it crumbling to earth. Aaron wondered how much was bluff. The old sorcerer might really be able to do it. In any case, he had nerve. What can you sing's offer us? asked the Xanthian. That is only for the king to hear, said Shorzan coldly. He will not thank you for molesting us. Now we will let you go to bear word back to your rulers. Tell them we are coming whether they will or no, and that we come in friendship, if they will but show it. After all, if they wish to kill us, it can be just as easily done, if at all, after they have heard us out. Now go. Imazu pulled the pike loose, and the yellow-bleeding Xanthian writhed overboard. I do not think we will be bothered again, said Shorzan calmly. Not before we get to the Black Palace. Maybe right, admitted Corrin. You gave me good argument by their standards. Friends, muttered Amazon. Friends with those things. I soon expect the Urinier to lie down by the bovin, I think. Come, said Chryseus impatiently. We have to repair the lake and clean the decks and get underway again. It is a long trip yet to the Black Palace. She turned to Corrin and her eyes with dark flames. How you fought, he whispered. How you fought, beloved. Chapter 6 The castle stood atop one of the high grey cliffs which walled in a little bay. Beyond the shore, the island climbed steeply toward a gaunt mountain bare of jungle. The sea rolled sullenly against the rocks under a low gloomy sky, thickening with the approach of night. Bazaire rowed slowly into the bay, twenty men at the oars and the rest standing nervous guard by the rails. On either side the Xanthi cavalry hemmed them in, lancers astride the swimming ceteraire, with eyes watchful on the humans, and behind them three great sea-snakes under direction of their sorcerers followed ominously. Imazu shivered. If they came at us now, he muttered, we wouldn't last long. We'd give them a fight, said Corrin. They will receive us, declared Shazam. 
The ship grounded on the shallows near the beach. The sailors hesitated. To pull her ashore would be to expose themselves almost helplessly to attack. Go on, jump to it, snapped Imazu, and the men shipped their oars and sheathed their weapons, waded into the bay, and dragged the vessel up on the strand. The chiefs of the Xanthi stood waiting for them. There were perhaps fifty of the reptiles, huge golden forms, wrapped in dark flowing robes, on which glittered ropes of jewels. A few were tall mitres, and carried hooked staffs of office. Like statues they stood, waiting, and the sailors shivered. Shorzan, Chryseus, Koran, and Amazu walked up toward them with all the slow dignity they could summon. The Conahurian's eyes sought the huge wrinkled form of Tsathu, king of the Xanthi. The monster's gaze brightened on him, and the fanged mouth opened in a bass croak. So you have returned to us. You may not leave this time. Your Majesty's hospitality overwhelms me, said Corwin ironically. A stooped old Xanthian beside the king plucked his sleeve and hissed rapidly. I told you, sir, I told you he would come back with the ruin of worlds in his train. Cut them all down now before the fates strike. Kill them while there is time. There will be time, said Sathu. His unblinking eyes locked with Shorzans, and suddenly the twilight shimmered and trembled. The nerves of men shook, and out in the water the sea beasts snorted with panic. For a long moment that silent duel of wizardry quivered in the air, and then it faded, and the unreality receded into the background of dusk. Slowly the Xanthian monarch nodded, as if satisfied to find an opponent he could not overcome. I am Shorzan of Akira, said the man, and I would speak with the chiefs of the Xanthi. You may do so, replied the reptile. Come up to the castle, and we will quarter your folk. At Imazu's order, the sailors began unloading the gifts that had been brought, weapons, vessels, and ornaments of precious metals set with jewels, rare tapestries, and incenses. Jathu hardly glanced at them. Follow me, he said curtly, all your people. I'd hoped at least to leave a guard on the ship, murmured Masu to Corrin. Would have done little good if they really wanted to see, sir, whispered the Conahurian. It did not seem as if Zathu could have heard them, but he turned and his bass boom rolled over the mumbling surf. That is right. You may as well relax. Your petty precautions. They will avail nothing. In a long file they went up a narrow trail toward the Black Palace. The Xanthian rulers went first, with deliberately paced dignity. They were after the human captains, their men, and a silent troop of armed reptile soldiery. Hemmed in, thought Corrin grimly, if they want to start shooting. Chrysis's hand clasped his, a warm grip in the misty gloom. He responded gratefully. She came right behind him, her other hand on the nervous and growling Irinye. The castle loomed ahead, blacker than the night that was gathering, the gigantic walls climbing sheer toward the sky, the spear-like towers half lost in the swirling fog. There was always fog here, Corrin remembered, mist and rain and shadow. There was never full day on the island. He sniffed the dank sea smell that blew from the gaping portals and bristled in recollection. They entered the cavernous doorway and went down a high, narrow corridor which seemed to stretch on forever. Its bare stone walls were wet and green-slimed. Tendrils of mist drifted under the invisibly high ceiling, and he heard the hooting and muttering of unknown voices somewhere in the murk. The only light was a dim, bluish radiance from fungi balls growing on the walls. 
a cold, unhealthy, shadowless illumination, in which the white humans looked like drowned corpses. Looking behind, Horan could barely make out the frightened faces of the Umlotuans, huddled close together and gripping their weapons with futile strength. The Xanti glided noiselessly through the mumbling gloom, tall spectral forms with faint golden light streaming from their damp scales. It seemed as if there were other presences in the castle, too, things flitting just beyond sight, hiding in lightless corners and fluttering between the streamers of fog. Always, it seemed, there were watching eyes, watching and waiting in the dark. They came into a cavernous antechamber, whose walls were lost in the dripping twilight. Zathu's voice boomed hollowly between the chill immensities of it. Follow those who will show you to your quarters. Silent Xanthi slipped between the human ranks, herding them with spears, the sailors one way, their chiefs another. Where are you taking the men? asked Amazu with an anger sharpened by fear. Where are you keeping them? The echoes flew from wall to wall, jeering him. Keeping them, keeping them, them, them. They go below the castle, said Azanthi. You will have more suitable rooms. Our men down in the old dungeons, Corn's hand whitened on the hilt of his sword, but it was useless to protest unless they wanted to start a battle now. The four human leaders were taken down another whispering, echoing tunnel of a corridor, up a long ramp that seemed to wind inside one of the towers, and into a circular room in whose walls were six doors. There the guards left them, fading back down the impenetrable night of the ramp. The rooms were furnished with grotesque ornateness, huge, hideously carved beds and tables, scaled tapestries and rugs, shells and jewels set in the mold-covered walls. Narrow slits of windows opened on the wet night. Darkness and mist hid Corrin's view of the ground, but the faintness of the turf told them that they must be dizzyingly high up. Ill this is, he said. A few guards on that ramp can bottle us up here forever, and they need only lock the dungeon gates to have our men imprisoned below. We will treat with them, before long they will be our allies, said Shorzan. His hooded eyes were on Chryseus. It was with a sudden shock the corn remembered. Days and nights of bliss, and then the violence of battle and the tension of approach had driven from his mind the fact that he had never been told what the witch pair was really here for. It was their voyage, not his, and what real good could have brought them to this place of evil? He shoved his big body forward, a tawny giant in the foggy chill of a central room. It is near time I was told something of what you intend, he said. I have guided you and taught you and battled at your side, and I'll not be kept blindfolded any longer. You will be told what I tell you. No more, said Shorzon haughtily. You have me to thank for your miserable life. Let that be enough. You can thank me when you're not being eaten by fish at the bottom of the sea right now, snapped Corrin. By Branach Branna, I've had enough of this. He stood with his back against the wall, sweeping them with ice-blue eyes. Shorzan stood black and ominous, wrath in the smouldering sunken eyes. Chryseus shrank back a little from both of them, but Perius the Irinier growled and flattened his belly to the floor and stared greenly at Corrin. Imazu shifted from foot to foot, his wide blue face twisted with indecision. I can strike you dead where you stand, warned Shorzan. I can become a monster that will rip you to rags. Try it, snarled Corrin. Just try it. Chrysis slipped between them and the huge dark eyes were bright with tears. Are we not in enough danger now? Four humans against a land of walking beasts? 
without falling at each other's throats. I think it is the witchcraft of Zathu working on us, dividing us. Bite him! She swayed against the Conachurian. Corrin, she breathed. Corrin, my dearest of all. You shall know. You shall be told everything as soon as we dare. But don't you see, you haven't the skill to protect yourself and your knowledge against the Xanthian magic. Or against your magic, beloved. She laughed softly and drew him after her into one of the rooms. Come, Corrin, we are all weary now. It is time to rest. Come, my dear, tomorrow.